Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, and tonight we'll take a look at verses 24 through 27. Romans 1 and 24 through 27. Read along with me as, as Paul says, Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, that their bodies might be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worship and serve the Creator, or the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also, the men abandon the natural function of the woman and burn in their desire toward one another, men with men, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. After introducing the theme of his letter in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, and let me remind you what that says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, But the righteous man shall live by faith. Uh, Paul's theme in this gospel is that man is justified by faith and not by works. So after introducing the theme of his letter in, in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, Paul develops in detail the case history of human sin and condemnation in chapter 1, verse 18 through 320. If Paul was to write a gospel tract, I suspect he would use the bad news, good news approach. I've got some really bad news for you. And chapter 1, verse 18 through 320, Paul is saying essentially, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then the good news comes after that. That's how I suspect he would write his gospel tract, because that's what he did in Romans, so I got it on pretty good authority. The section moves from the declaration of Gentile sin, which is in 118 through 32, through Jewish sin in 21 through 38, to the diagnosis that, quote, all the world... End quote, is guilty before God. All are under sin. We see that, in, we will see that in chapter 3, verse 9. And all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's, of course, Romans chapter 3, verse 23. Now, I want you to notice, please don't let this slide by. The, these are present tense situations. The wrath of God is presently being revealed from heaven against all sin and ungodliness. All are under sin presently uh, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God this is a present tense reality if one has not received the forgiveness of sins and eternal life through faith alone in Christ alone then one stands according to Paul one stands under the wrath of God currently even though Jesus Christ has already gone to the cross one still stands under the wrath of God if you have not appropriated that remedy and I, sometimes I take things for granted that we all understand that. But salvation is by, by grace through faith alone, in Christ alone. You don't get to work your way to heaven. You don't just be good enough to get to heaven. It is by faith alone, in Christ alone. S. Lewis Johnson, who was one of the finest exegetes that Dallas Seminary ever produced, was from a different era, but he says this, and I want you to listen carefully. It's several sentences, but, but he says it so well, I'd like for you to listen as he summarizes this. In the immediate context, Paul, in his endeavor to prove that only righteousness, that the only righteousness available to man is obtained by faith, 
declared that God's displeasure towards sin has been revealed from heaven. It follows, of course, that all, or who, ch all who are charged with ungodliness or unrighteousness stand under his wrath and cannot obtain acceptance before God by their character or by their conduct. That the Gentiles are guilty before God is, is evident because they have enjoyed a, relation, a revelation of God's eternal power and deity, yet they have rejected, it, rejected that. We saw that in verses 19 and 20. And not only have they rejected the light of this truth, they have given themselves up to idolatry, which was our subject last week. The Pauline picture of the religious history of mankind is one of retrogression, not progression, of devolution, not evolution, downward, not upward. In unbelief, man has passed from light to futility to folly. Paul wasn't a post-millennialist who thinks everything is getting better. He sees it as getting worse. Thus, the divine wrath has found its justification in the human rejection of the truth of God. There remains, therefore, only one alternative for God and man, divine retribution. And it is this that the apostle so solemnly and yet so vigorously proclaims in the final section of chapter 1, verses 24 through 32. Sin justly brings judgment. The central proposition of our verses today, and actually all the way through verse 32, but especially beginning in verse 24, is that people cannot reject God and come away unscathed. People cannot reject God and come away unscathed. This is true whether or not the person is a believer or an unbeliever. But Paul's context here is the unbeliever, so that's what we'll stick with primarily tonight. But even as a believer, even as one who has the penalty of sin removed from you forever, sin does have consequences. And if you are, are flippant with God about his right to rule in your life, you will not come away unscathed. And the unbeliever who rejects God will not come away Unscathed. So in verses 24 through 27, Paul draws out some of the consequences of the pagan world's refusal to worship God as he is. We're going to get into this in just a moment, but, but don't miss that word, some. This is not all of the consequences, the potential consequences, this, but these are some of the consequences that the unbeliever will face by refusing to worship God as he is. For Paul, the good that people do is not a problem. It is the sin that they commit that's the problem. It's not the wages of good that is death. It's the wages of sin that is death. An important thing that Paul explains is that what happens to the rejector of God is not simply an inevitable process of cause and effect which takes place while God just stands by, more or less like a spectator. Sin does have its inevitable results. Okay. But three times in this section, Paul says, God gave them up. He does it in verse 24, verse 26, and verse 28, indicating that God is active in the process of, whereby sin's consequences follow sin. 
We worship an infinite personal God. This is not a God that just created the world, as the deist would say, or deist used to say. There are not very many deists around anymore. A few, I guess, but not very many. He didn't just create the world and then just just leave it alone to work out its own problems. Sin does have inevitable consequences. I think we all understand that. But And that's part of this passage. But we're going to see tonight that God is actually an active part of what happens in those consequences as well. God is active in the process whereby sin's consequences follow sin. Now, with that introduction, let's take a look at the verses themselves. Verse 24, therefore, God gave them over. That's one of the, the, the first of three times that that phrase is going to come up. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity that their bodies might be dishonored among them. The Greek word dio, D-I-O, is translated therefore, and it introduces the reason for what follows and links it with what's preceded. Remember when we talk about Bible study and Bible study methods, whenever you see the word therefore, you need to look back and see what it's there for, to see why Paul is using that word or any other uh, human uh, author under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit using that word. So because of what's happened in verse 18 through 23, Paul says dio, or therefore, and then he follows with uh, uh, the, a, a reason. It was on account of their rejection of divine revelation and their preferring idols to the true God that God gave them up to the results of their foolishness. Now, this phrase, God gave them over, again, is in verse 24, verse 26, and verse 28. He gave them over by turning this person or these type of people or this category of persons, over to the punishment that they have earned. Just like a judge does with a prisoner. Paradokin, which is the verb that is used for he gave them over, shows that God is active and not simply passive in the process. And if it hadn't hit you yet, this, this ought to scare the pants off of you when it comes to willfully disobeying and rejecting God. Now, again, I said in the beginning, our, our context tonight is primarily the unbeliever who's rejected the fact that God exists. But the same principle holds true for us. This is not just a passive game. You mess with the sovereignty and the holiness of God, and he doesn't stand by idly. He will pull the belt off and whoop your tail for you actively. Okay, And that's the nicest way I can put it. That's your application, but he's going to do the same to the unbeliever. And the, the, the judgment that they take is nothing that we ever want any part of, and we don't have to worry about being a part of it because our sins have been forever forgiven. But be careful with this. It's, a, it's an active process, not simply a passive process when we, become, when we reap what we have sown. The verb has its roots in the Old Testament, where it's regularly used in the formula according to which God hands over Israel's enemies so that they could be defeated in battle. God would hand over the Philistines to the, to the Jews, and then the Jews could defeat them. God would hand over the Moabites, and they would be defeated. That's a regular use of this, this term in an Old Testament con, uh, context. Uh, in an ironic role reversal, though, the same formula is used when God hands his own people over to another nation for punishment of their sins. Now, that happened at least twice in a big, big way. He hands the northern kingdom over to the Assyrians, 
and he hands the southern kingdom over to the Babylonians. So God was actively involved in that, you see. Now, we could look back at history. If we didn't have that phraseology in the text, we could look back at history and say, well, they just were the product of their own decisions. God stood by and allowed that to happen. In other words, he just didn't restrict it from happening. Okay, that's one way of looking at that, that God is passive in the process. But in the Old Testament context, and in this context too, it's not, I don't want you to picture it that way, that, that we do things that are wrong, and then inevitably things will happen because of the law of, uh, of, of reaping what you sow. That's, that is a true statement. But I also don't want you to think God's over in the corner just kind of watching, seeing what's going on. This passage tells us that, no, God's not in the corner. God's over there pushing it along. Now, we need to explain that. Paul is not saying, he is not saying that God is compelling these people to sin. Because the verse says, therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, that their bodies might be dishonored among them. We'll talk about what that means just very, very shortly. But he's not causing that, but he's turning them over to that. He's not compelling these people to sin. That would be a contradiction of Scripture, a direct contradiction of Scripture, I think, in James 1.13, as well as a violation of the, of the very character of God, the holiness of God that's contained in Scripture or described in Scripture. These people were already immersed in sin. It is as if those who reject the revelation of God, that's the best way I can picture it. Have you ever been out to Astroworld and seen the Texas Cyclone? I mean, it's, it's an older thing now. Most of us have been on that a time or two, or, or at least seen somebody that was on it. Judy, you know all about that. <laughs> yeah, Judy used to work out there. But, but it would be like somebody being at the top of that Texas Cyclone, which has kind of got a real scary drop that you kind of look over and it just it goes right down. It's the scariest part of that ride. But if we picture that drop as being as uh, reaping what we sow and, and getting into the results of our sin, it's as if the, the, these people that Paul's talking about are in that roller coaster, sitting on the very top of that, perched, ready to go down the way. And you know there'll be momentum that inevitably takes you all the way down. It's as if God's also up there pushing behind to make sure you don't think you're going to get away with it, and having already greased the, the tracks. That's the picture that Paul's giving. He is not causing them to sin, but he's saying, no, you are going, you are going to suffer the inevitable consequences of this, and I'm going to speed it up just a little bit for you. That's what this passage is saying. So God doesn't simply let them go over the edge, which is the passive part. Now, he does that. I'm not saying it's not, there is not a passive part to it. He doesn't simply let them go over the edge, but he has greased the tracks, which is the active part of that. You see what I'm uh, getting at here? He doesn't cause them to sin, but he does hand them over, just like a judge would hand someone over for punishment. Uh, a prisoner who has been convicted, uh, a judge may hand that prisoner over for the uh, execution of the punishment that has been prescribed. God hands the sinner over to the cycle of ever-increasing sin. God hands the sinner over to the cycle of ever-increasing sin. This is the third characteristic of man in rebellion against God that Paul's identified. The first one was ignorance. We studied that in verse 21. The second one was idolatry. We studied that in verse 23. And tonight he talks about impurity in verse 24. For God, therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts 
into impurity. Paul evidently had forms of several different forms of moral uncleanness in view here. Now, I, I know we've already read through the passage. The first thing on your mind now is, is uh, lesbianism and homosexuality. That doesn't come in this verse. You make a huge mistake if you think that that's what's happening in verse 24. And what, what you're going to do is we're going to excuse a lot of sinning that God thinks is abominable by jumping ahead. Don't do that. What's being spoken of in verse 24 are forms of moral uncleanness such as adultery and prostitution. Possibly and probably cult prostitution. Because remember where Paul is when he's writing this letter? He's in Corinth. And Corinth was a city that was well known in ancient history for having approximately a thousand cult prostitutes descend on the city of Corinth every evening. That was the culture that Paul lived in. That was a culture. He, he had to walk down the street right past these women. And so... The word that Paul uses here for impurity probably is referring to heterosexual sexual immorality. Okay, that's the first thing. Now, in verses 26 through 27, he will describe a progression of immorality. Uh, namely, he'll call them unnatural acts, such as homosexuality. But here he's talking about natural acts. Natural is not always good. This is a case where there's natural sinning, and we'll, uh, we'll consider that sins that were, are between a man and a woman, in that sense being natural, although not natural in the sense that when, you, when one fornicates, when one commits adultery, uh, when one uh, unites their body with a cult prostitute, one is abusing that which God designed for a different purpose, and that is procreation and recreation between a man and a woman inside of marriage. Okay. Okay. So the progression looks like this. Listen carefully. Because of their false religiosity, remember in the previous verses they were worshiping birds and what has been created instead of the Creator. And the reason they were doing that is because they had rejected the truth that God exists. They had willfully suppressed the knowledge of the truth. So now, because of their false religiosity, God gave them over, both actively and passively, to impurity. And in this context, we'll just call it heterosexual sexual immorality. In the lust of their hearts, the, the text says, so that, and that's a result and a purpose, their bodies might be dishonored among them. In the lust of their hearts refers to their innermost being. These people had become perverse. They weren't just doing perverse things, but it was, it was pervading every part of their soul, every part of who they were. This is, uh, this is some serious sexual degeneration that um, is taking place here. And then there's a result. The word that, the way that works in Greek, is, is a, could either be result or purpose. But when God is the one who's performing the action, purpose does end up in result. And so, uh, so that the result or purpose was that their bodies might be dishonored amongst them. So it started off uh, 
with what was going on inside. But what goes on inside has ramifications to our physical body as well. We just don't get away with it. Nobody rejects God and then comes away unscathed. Now, I want you to note something here. And perhaps the biggest irony in this whole passage, at least from my standpoint, the sin of immorality that these people get into was also part of the punishment for rejection of God. Get this. The sin that they engaged in was also an integral part of God's punishment. What does that mean? It means that these folks were into sexual perversion and degeneracy, I'm sure, I'm certain because they thought it would bring them happiness. That's why, that's why people get into that. Any sinful pattern, because you think it's going to make you happy. Anytime you reject God, the reason you're doing it is because deep down in your soul, you're saying, God, I think I know better than, me, than you what's going to make me happy. I know you've got this rule against doing that, but my body says I'd like to do this, and so I'm going to do this. And the irony here is, it's incredible irony, that the very thing that they thought was going to make them happy, God was using to punish them. Because if you've been around the block at all, if you've been around this world at all, you've talked to people, you've counseled with people, perhaps you were in that situation yourself. I don't know, don't need to know. God only knows. But those folks are not happy. In fact, when one commits adultery, it'll bring some of the most intense unhappiness of that person's life. There's incredible guilt that comes along with it, not to mention all the problems and all the things, all the tentacles and, and, and how far-reaching that, that particular sin is. The very thing that they thought would bring them happiness and joy and some sort of completeness is what God uses in an ironic twist to bring them misery and discipline. Now, don't ever think you can mess with God and get away with it. You know, I know sometimes we don't sit down and think that. We don't, we don't ever say it out loud. But that's what our actions betray, that we think that we can figure out a way to beat God's system. And God says, no, I set down certain rules and regulations for the stability of mankind, not to mention my own people. And when those are broken, you will pay the price. Now, Again, we're talking unbelievers in the context, but I, want, I, can't, I can't help but make the application with regard to the principle for the believer, too. Now, the believer can, has a believer's got a remedy the unbeliever doesn't have. The unbeliever's remedy is to trust Jesus Christ for eternal life and have that sin forgiven. The believer's remedy is to confess that sin before God. And the scriptures do say, if we judge ourselves, we'll not be judged. And it's, uh, that doesn't mean that every time a confession is made, then there is no... Uh, discipline that takes place, that God knows what's in the heart, he knows how much repentance there's been, I have to leave that up to him and his wisdom to be able to figure that out. But the sin of immorality was also part of the punishment for rejection of God. You, you, you've heard that phrase, God will even use the wrath of man to please him. You can't, we are not going to ever, ever, for all of times, ever even come close to being smart as God is. And so don't try to outfox him. You know the best thing to do? would be to faithfully obey him. And if you haven't, 
this is a problem for you tonight, before your head hits the pillow, make sure that you have confessed that to him and, and asked for his help in getting your life back in the way that it ought to be. Now, in verse 25, For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the Creator, or the, I'm sorry, I did that again, worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. That's not a real fair trade, is it? It would be, it would be like having a brand new Ferrari sitting in your driveway, and your neighbor has a, a run-down clunker that he got from the junkyard that doesn't have a steering wheel or an engine in it, that's rusted out, and the tires are bald, and you say, I'm going to exchange this Ferrari for that junker that you've got. Uh, most people would say that you're uh, insane if you would do that. Even if you don't want a Ferrari, go sell it and buy seven or eight other cars that you could drive, or more than that. That would probably be the wise thing to do. But that's not a fair trade. That's not, that's not even borderline insanity. That's way over the edge insanity. Well, if that's way over the edge insanity, what about someone who exchanged the truth of God, which they had revealed to them? Remember, in, in verses 19 and 20, 21, it was revealed to them in nature. But they exchanged that truth for a beat-up, run down, rusted out, clunker with no engine and no steering wheel in it. They exchanged it for a lie. And actually the Greek text says for the lie, the satanic lie. Satan would love nothing better than for us to think that God doesn't exist. Or if we do think he exists, that God doesn't care anything about us. Or if he cares something about us, then he cares for us in a negative way like Satan did with Eve. Oh, you're not going to really die. God just wants you to be as smart as he is. Take and eat that fruit. It's no big deal. That's the lie. The lie is that you can get away with anything. That's, that is the lie that Satan's saying. The lie is that you can worship God any way you want to worship him. I'll prescribe the way I worship God. Leave me alone. Thank you very much. That is the lie. And since it's a definite lie, we have to understand this is Satan's lie. And the lie was that they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Mankind exchanged the truth of God for the lie. Uh, and so in direct context, the lie is that we should worship someone or something in place of the true God. Same thing that happened in Genesis 3, the fall of man passage. Same thing that Satan tried to tempt Jesus to do in Matthew 4. Paul's concluding doxology underlines this idiocy, if you will, um, he throws in just this one phrase, and he's, he's, uh, this is something fairly common with Paul. Who's blessed forever? Uh, who ought to be worshipped forever? <laughs> Paul knows where his bread is buttered. You know, one of my favorite verses, new, one of my new favorite verses in all of Scripture, <laughs> is one of the verses Paul says at the end of his life, I know in whom I've believed. I know in whom I've believed. It's almost like he's saying, do you know in whom you've believed? And not just to the unsaved. Believer, do you know in whom you're trusting? Do you really know him? Because that was Paul's greatest goal in life. Our concern with truth is an inevitable expression of our concern with God. If God exists, then he is the measure of all things. And what he thinks about all things is the measure of what we should think. 
Not to care about truth is not to care about God. And there are some people that really don't care because that's another satanic lie that no, the truth really doesn't exist. And our kids, our, our young adults are being exposed to that ad nauseum in the college classroom, the high school classroom, even in the junior high classroom. Moral relativism is, is a philosophy that says that there is no such thing as truth. How can you make a truth claim? When the, the fact that if, if I was to say there is no such thing as truth is actually a self-defeating statement because I'm making a claim about truth even to say that. You can't even, you can't even express it without it being self-defeating. So uh, if God does exist, if he really does, if we really do believe that, then we ought to live like we believe it. We ought to act like we believe it. We ought to talk like we believe it. We ought to treat other people like it is that we believe that. Now, verses 26 and 27, we have the second, for God gave them over. We won't get to the third one. We'll have to do that next time. But in verse 26, for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. This verse begins with the two Greek words, diatuto, which is literally translated on account of this. Because, Paul's saying, because mankind exchanged the truth of God for a lie, God allowed him to, deg to degrade himself through his sexual lusts. So you, you see what's happening is a progression of things. The progressive result was that man exchanged, again, you have this um, the same idea you exchanging a Ferrari for a, a beat up run down rusted out no engine no steering wheel clunker you, you exchange the beauty of what God designed for a rusted out clunker because mankind exchanged the truth of God for a lie God allowed him to degrade himself through his sexual lusts the progressive result was that he exchanged natural human functions for that which is unnatural. Don't miss the, the progression, though. They were already abusing the natural human function. And this is one step more. In the Greek text, the words translated women and men mean males and females, uh, technically speaking. Ironically, the homosexuality described in these verses doesn't characterize males and females of other animal species, only human beings. Homosexuality is a perversion because it uses sex for a purpose contrary to that for which God created it. But before, and I know this is very tempting because I know it's a huge problem in our culture today, but before we get the guillotines out, and go after the homosexuals and homosexuality, remember verse 24. Because there's a lot of adulterers out there that are ready to execute a lot of homosexuals out there. And the Old Testament prescribes execution for both of them. Okay? Now, I hope you're getting to see the picture now. Talk about the pot calling the kettle black. God's, God doesn't play that. Now, this is, this is in no way excusing either one of them, please. 
But I want you to see the progression of degeneracy that's taking place. The adultery, the, the adultery and cult prostitution were also not uses of sex for, uh, for that which it was designed. And uh, God designed sex for procreation and recreation between a man and a woman in marriage. And I want to stress both those functions. There have been a few. Now, granted, it's few. And I prefer not to even tell you which ones, because some of them are extremely well-known, that hold that God only created sex for procreation. And that's not biblically... Uh, you cannot validate that biblically. Also see why it's, um, it's difficult. Actually, it's insulting to hear certain churches say that homosexuality is not a sin. You may as well say that adultery is not a sin or cult prostitution is not a sin. It's here in black and white. And um, those who would say that, you need to understand when you turn on the television, you listen to people on the news, they don't hold that the Bible is what we hold the Bible is, to be the inerrant word of God. Uh, they would have to disregard these kind of passages altogether. So it's not as though they look at these passages and say, you know, there's just another way of interpreting that. If you look real deep into the Greek, it really doesn't mean that. That's not what we're talking about here. They've got to throw these passages out completely because whether it's in English or Greek, these are some serious sins. Now, the last phrase has received quite a bit of press in our day. I don't really, if you'll forgive me, I, I think you understand what, what homosexuality is and what lesbianism is. I don't really think I need to, to break down that grammar any more than it already is. Uh, if you don't, uh, I guess the first thing you're supposed to do is ask your husband <laughs> biblically. But if, if he won't answer it, come and ask me, and I'll be happy to tell you some more details. But I'd, I'd rather get to this last phrase, uh, receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Now, some folks, uh, a lot of folks in our culture today, uh, would ask the question, well, what about AIDS? And that's a very legitimate, uh, very practical question. They, they would ask, is AIDS the consequence of man's rebellion against God or a special judgment from God? Well, if we were to look at, if we were to answer that question in the light of these verses, we would have to say probably a bit of both. Because remember, we're talking about a passive-active issue. Mankind is going to go over the edge of that roller coaster, but God's also given it a little shove and greasing the wheels. So it may very well be, I mean, God only knows at this point. We just have to look at the and try to interpret something that history is giving us, and that's always a dangerous thing to do, especially for pastors, because you get it on tape, and it turns out it may not, not have been what you thought it was, and that's I, I wouldn't want to do that and then... And then uh, take a chance on, on hurting the rest of the message that I do know that is absolutely true. But I would assume that it's probably a little bit of both. Um, the due penalty is what man experiences as a result of God giving him over and let him in, letting him indulge in his <coughs> sinful desires. So um, we, we certainly know that, that AIDS is something that is a, a horrible disease, there are people that get AIDS that are totally innocent, and I, and I feel in, incredibly for those, the, the children, the people like Arthur Ashe who got AIDS from a blood transfusion and, di and died from it. Um, 
so we've got to be a little bit careful. If it was totally a judgment from God, only an active judgment from God, then I would I would start I would have to think a little I would lean a little bit toward uh, why would God allow you know somebody's totally innocent to be part of that, although there is overflow. But we just don't know, so I can't say anything more uh, dogmatically about it. And your opinion would be as good as mine. And so we'll move on to the fact that this passage does not reject does not teach that all homosexuality is practiced by those who have rejected the existence of God. I mean, it doesn't teach that. The passage doesn't teach that all those who practice heterosexual sexual immorality have rejected the existence of God. Neither one of those does this passage teach. It certainly indicates that these two sins can be a part of a progression of consequences resulting from the rejection of God. And as I opened today, I said there were others. There, there certainly could be others as well. This is what Paul chose to make his point in this passage. So, is homosexuality a sin? Of course it is. Is adultery a sin? Of course it is. Is fornication with a prostitute a sin? Of course it is. One other question that inevitably comes up, and, and I'll touch on this and then we're going to close, but there is a question of uh, regarding homosexuality. Is it a genetic or is it volitional? Is, is one born with it or is it, a, um, is it totally a willful act? This passage, regardless of what your view is on that, this passage does not directly address that issue. So if you were to go to this passage and try to make your case one way or another, you would be on shaky ground. But what I would, what I would like to propose to you, my, my view is that it's volitional, but if I'm proven wrong and without a shadow of a doubt, and I hate to say science because that's putting science in a place that I don't believe it belongs, but if somehow I could be proven wrong, it really doesn't change the fact that the behavior should not be engaged in. Okay? And I, I would give you a, a couple of examples in closing, and that is, and I don't mean to be crude, please don't take it that way, I'm trying to just illustrate the point, but there are a lot of males, you know, 17 to 25-ish, that have raging hormones that are flowing, but yet we don't excuse them engaging in sex outside of marriage. We, we expect them to refrain from that behavior, don't we? The same way with even anymore today, it seems like a lot of the females are the ones that, and this is what's really turned society upside down, is when the females become the aggressors. Because you're not going to find a whole lot of males of that age that are going to say no, 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 no. I mean, it happens, and I'm glad that it does, and it ought to. But just because one is full of hormones, which would be a, a, a physical pull toward performing that action, doesn't mean God excuses it. We still expect them to restrict it. Uh, there's, uh, there's far more, more information that perhaps alcoholism may or may be genetic, but whether that is or not, we still expect the alcoholic to use their will and to avoid abusing alcohol. 
to some to some extent, we could say that, that, that there are gamblers who become um, addicted. Some people have an addictive gambling type behavior, and we would expect that person not to indulge, and and perhaps start uh, playing the commodities market, you know, or or, or day trading stocks. You, you see what I mean? If that's the type of addiction that you have, then you would be expected to use your will. And, and not start trading pork bellies because everything I understand, that's as much gambling is even more gambling than, than betting the line on a football game. So we, we have to still use our will. Even, I'm, just, I'm not saying one way or another that homosexuality is, I would, I would give my opinion that homosexuality is not totally genetic because I don't believe that God would do that. But even if it wasn't, homosexuality is still a sin. Because you have to, you're expected to use your will to stop it. All of us have lust patterns. That's just part of our flesh, and we're expected not to engage in that lustful pattern. Now finally, something that is a uh, another huge issue for today: should gay marriages, should homosexual marriages be legalized? And the answer to that is biblically, absolutely not. I mean, that, we don't even have a question about that. The biblical stance on that is marriages between one man and one woman. It is a sacred institution and needs to be protected. And so while I don't, uh, I don't pretend to tell you who to vote for, I try as best as I can, even with my jokes, to keep my opinions to myself. Uh, I think if you know me for any length of time, uh, you know where I stand with, with those issues, but I don't believe, uh, I don't like when other churches do it, I won't do it here. But um, in terms of candidates, but in terms of issues, and this may be new for you, in terms of issues, these issues, should, the opinions on the issues should be expressed from the pulpit. If you go back in our history, they always have been, or they were in the early part of our, our history, because this is a cultural issue that has Christian, the Christians have to take a stand on, and the, the answer is absolutely not. It's not a matter of freedom. It's, it's a matter of, uh, of biblical uh, truths. And if you look into that movement, you'll see that that's not, where that movement wants to stop. They don't want to stop with man, man, woman, woman. They want to go with older man, very, very much, you know, 12-year-old woman, 5-year-old. If, if, the, if the criteria is, well, they love each other, then you could have some 4-year-old says, well, yes, I love him, you know. I, I love Uncle Bob. You know, and Uncle Bob says, well, I want to marry her. That, it's, there are perversions. And then there's nothing to stop uh, the, the progression of that, which, again, I don't think we need to get into. I think you see the point. But in summarizing these verses, 24 through 27, tough verses, aren't they? You don't even like to visualize this stuff, do we? But it is the reality, and it's out there. And Paul wrote about it. It's the world that he lived in. And I, I just am saddened it's the world that we live in, too. It's just it's all over the place culturally. But people, the, the principle that Paul's teaching in verses 24 through 27, and actually it'll go all the way through 32, but... We, we won't be able to do that tonight, is that people cannot reject God and come away unscathed. Heavenly Father, I do appreciate so much that you have revealed yourself to us in your word. I, I thank you that you have uh, taught us these truths through the, through the Holy Spirit and your servant, Paul. And now, Father, may we take these truths and apply them in love to our own lives, to our culture, and may we make wise decisions with regard to, to how we interact with others 
on a political level with regard to this and help us do that which would glorify you. And for we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.